So Russia is trying to get the band back together, huh? Man, some people won't let the Cold War go, right? So <laughs> they're just trying to get that empire back. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been 30 some odd years since the fall of uh, the Berlin Wall. A little over 30 years. Yeah. And so, uh, too long, Putin according just, to some. Yeah, Putin just was, you know, pining for the good old days. Wanted, <laughs> uh, wanted free entry into Crimea and now Ukraine. Uh, I saw, I saw the well, before uh, that Georgia. Wasn't it like in yeah. 08 when he grabbed Georgia? Yeah, Georgia, yeah. Uh, you know where Joseph Stalin was born. Not an actual Russian. A, he was a Georgian. <laughs> Ethnically, same thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, most people have no idea that there's a country named Georgia. So I'd, I'd be curious to know how many people actually know that and where it's located in the world. But yeah, it's uh, I saw the where all the Russian divisions are loading up, including in Belarus. And I'm like, yeah, that, that looks a little bit more than an exercise. Yeah. Well, it's an exercise right now. Yes. It's about <laughs> it's, to be an exercise in taking land. Yeah. Yeah. It's going from, a, you know, basically an exercise to a rehearsal for an invasion to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and my bet would be, I mean, they they kind of had a pattern of this now. I mean, they'll do it when the Olympics start, get as much as they can while the world's distracted, and then they'll they'll hit pause. But I mean, that, they invaded Georgia during the Olympics, I believe. They definitely took uh, Crimea during the uh, Winter Olympics in twenty what fourteen. That sounds right. Roundabout. So, I mean, whenever whenever enough people are preoccupied to not have all the focus beyond what they're doing, they'll they'll do what they can when they can. So, yeah. And, uh, I mean, technically they took Crimea, they democratically, they let the citizens vote, right? Well, I mean, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) the the same way Putin is elected president, the citizens voted and elections have consequences. (laughs) Yeah. They have uh, a lot of voting rights over there or, or lack thereof. I think that they probably have like, Theoretically, on the books, a lot of voting rights, but in the end, their votes don't matter. So, does well, it's it like truly cartels? Matter? You have you have the public books, and then you have the real books, right? Where the real money gets moved. So, right? Yeah, I've seen enough Sopranos. I know how that works. <laughs> well, welcome to the OVO Deep State Podcast. This is episode fifteen. I am Jake Lane at the Rake, but the A is a four on Twitter. As always, my co-host at Thomas Black underscore 86 on Twitter, the show's Twitter at OVO Deep State. Uh, But speaking of voting rights, we wanted to do an episode on voting in general for a while. Now is as good a time as ever, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, this big debate in Congress over do we get rid of the filibuster or not in order to pass the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And If you're not aware, the Senate is split down the middle 50-50, and in order to break a filibuster, you need 60 votes, which the Democrats do not have. They don't have 10 10 Republicans who are willing to vote with them. So in order to pass the Voting Rights Act, and maybe more, who knows what's on their agenda if the filibuster is lifted, but they want – you only need a simple majority to change Senate rules. 
So they want to change Senate rules to make it so they don't need 60 senators to vote on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And that would give them a lot of power over the next, I don't know, 12 months until the next elections. Yeah, we'll have elections at the end of this year. And they'll, yeah, the first session of Congress is, is about a year away. So they don't have a whole lot of time to enact their policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately for them, two of their own, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Cinema of Arizona, will not vote with the 48 other Democrats to bust the filibuster. And we wanted to, like I said, we've been wanting to talk about voting and voting rights for a while. So it just seemed like the perfect time to do it. Uh, I think we want to start off with just a general ground laying of information about what the filibuster is, the history of the filibuster, uh, what, how it's used and why it's useful and why it's, why it's not. Uh, so do you want to start us off with some of your historical knowledge? Sure. Yeah, so I mean, I think the first thing is filibuster is not like a constitutional requirement for government. Um, nothing in the Constitution says you have to have, uh, you know, 64, 60 votes to proceed. Um, really, just the how, how it was in the beginning was you would vote to end the debate on a particular bill that was being debated, and then you would vote again on the passage of the bill or not. Um, I think it was under uh, Jefferson's first administration when Aaron Burr was vice president, and he said, this is silly. We just have two votes for the same thing. Let's stop with the vote to end the debate and let's just vote on the bill. So for, I don't know, about 100 years, a little more, there was no filibuster rule in place. Um, went until the early 20th century um, where they decided that they would have to vote with a two thirds majority in the Senate to end debate on a bill. And then once a bill, the debate on the bill was finished. Uh, that's when you would vote on the marriage of the bill. And then a simple majority was just needed to actually vote on the marriage of that bill. Uh, and then I think, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, it used to be two-thirds, now it's 60%. So basically the difference of one senator from when it started to what it is now. Uh, yeah, so it always, like, just a small correction. In the Constitution, there are certain votes that has to be two-thirds. Uh Conviction on impeachment charges, expelling yeah. a member of Congress, overriding presidential vetoes, ratifying treaties, and proposing constitution- constitutional amendments require two-thirds of the Senate. And for the last one, amendments is two-thirds of both houses. So there is like a little uh, precedent in the Constitution for two-thirds of the Senate. But literally, the Constitution doesn't say anything else about any other vote. Every other vote can be a simple majority. Uh, and as you said, they, they kind of inadvertently created the filibuster by getting away getting away from that first vote to end debate, uh, putting us in the situation we are now. But it's been used for, I would say, good and bad over the history of the Senate. Yeah, I mean, I think there were definitely times, I mean, what the reality is, just uh, in my opinion, probably a number of times where um, it's been used to, to divert progress on something that was good and, and useful and right. Um, and other times, like you said, it's probably been used because the, the, the evidence wasn't overwhelming that this was the right thing to do. And then the important thing to remember about the Senate, too, I mean, as a body, that is the, the, the body with the greatest longevity in the sense of voted, the senators are voted on every six years. And the intent is that needs to be the, the longest looking 
um, variants of, of federal government. You know, every two years the House changes over. Um, the senators are intentionally brought to the Senate to be a little bit more forward-thinking. So the idea is let's be careful about what's passed and, and how it's passed um, and get a good consensus and not just a simple majority. So currently, I said before, they are trying to lift the filibuster requirement to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. In recent years, Rand Paul has filibustered uh, defense spending. Uh, I can't think of any any like in the last couple of years. I don't know if there's any filibusters during the Trump uh, presidency. Wasn't Demian? Uh, I think it was somewhat recent. When did Ted Cruz read Cat in the Hat? Wasn't he filibustering? I feel like that was like 2013, wasn't it? Oh goodness. I don't know. Maybe not. It may be. Well, I, I mean, I can't remember what, what the act was that he was trying to. I feel like it was 20. I feel like it was 2013 when they were trying to stop government from closing. And that's when he kind of made a name for himself as like, nobody liked him was because he filibustered that and the government closed for like, it might've been, it might've been 2012. I don't remember, but it was like one, he was a first term Senator. I remember mm-hmm. he was, uh, I don't. I, I could be completely wrong on my timing here, but I seem to remember like that's when Ted Cruz kind of made a name for himself, and uh, when Lindsey Graham made that remark about if somebody shot him on the Senate floor, nobody would testify uh, <laughs> because because that. nobody liked him. Well, the Cotton Hat thing is probably the most like in recent history the most memorable. Yeah, and again, that. that's like. The fil- like the problem with the f- current filibuster is like you don't even have to f- actually filibuster. Like nobody makes anybody filibuster anymore. They just say they're going to filibuster, mm-hmm. and if you don't have the sixty votes, then it never comes up for a vote. Which I, I, I'll, I'll talk about this later. But like the, the not letting people make that like they're going to force the vote on the vo- John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It makes cinema uh, and mansion, you know, vote yes or no. I think that's smart. I think I think it's dumb that like they don't bring stuff to the floor because they know it's going to fail. But I, I like getting people on record because then you can point to it and say this person says all this, but they voted against what they just said they were they were for. You know? Oh, a hundred percent. And when I think you know, and I, I we probably we may disagree on, on Senator Manchin. I generally disagree with him more on policy, but I, I, at least respect him. Like I think he's a honorable human. Um, which is more than you could say for a lot of members of Congress, I'm, I'm afraid. But I mean, I think he made that point too when when he was saying, "Okay, if the Republicans want to filibuster something, they should actually have to be put on record of filibustering it. They should actually have to continue to speak and then don't make it easy, basically." Um, and again, so a lot of this stuff, like you said, to me, is just to take a position to stand by it and then be on record. Um, so I think yeah. with everything, if I'm on either side of the aisle. I'm at least getting, you know, somebody to put their name on an act and not just be able to kind of hide an ambiguity. So, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit on Twitter, but just for, for us to go on the record and have it permanently recorded in history, are you for or against the current incarnation of the filibuster and why I am for the filibuster? I think it, forces more compromise. I think it forces more nuance and care in the crafty crafting of legislation. Um, and just in general, I think that 
we need to get away from the mindset that if democracy grants permission, that makes it just. So the closer you get to just, let's say, for instance, a simple majority, um, that it's just easier to have greater atrocities by government. Whereas if you have a 60 vote threshold or a two thirds vote threshold, it's, it's, it's harder, not impossible, but it's a, to me, it's a safeguard issue almost, um, of the federal government running wild. So I understand that. And I'll briefly add that doesn't mean that really good pieces of legislation haven't been filibustered in the past. It doesn't mean the system's perfect, but I think my general outlook, especially at the federal level is not how much good can you do, but how much damage can we mitigate? Yeah, I can see that. I think that there's a common, especially among libertarians, because they're very anti-central power, uh, centralized power, I should say. And I've heard this from other of my deep red friends, that an ineffectual government, a government that doesn't do a lot, is a good government. That's what they want. They don't want a, a government that actually is efficient and functions well. I don't want to say functions well, but they, they think gridlock is good because that means that if, if something is changed, it means that kind of like you're saying, like the majority wanted it to change the 60, they, you get that 60 votes because it seems like a better idea. The problem I have. So I would say, I would say five plus years ago, up until about five years ago, maybe even a little bit more recently, I would say I would agree with your take on the situation that the filibuster is a good idea. I know where you're going with this. Go ahead though. Yeah, I think it's not even that I don't necessarily buy some of the arguments from left leaning people that like the 50 senators, the 50 democratic senators represent far more people than the 50 Republican senators do. I don't necessarily buy that. I mean, I, I buy it. I understand like that. That stat is real. I don't know if it's a good reason to ditch the filibuster. I'm tired of what I just said. Some of my Republican friends believe I'm tired of that. I'm tired of Republicans blaming Democrats for not compromising. And I'm tired of Democrats blaming Republicans for being uh, obstructionist. The, either mm-hmm. side being obstructionist, whatever it is, they, they blame each other, right? We didn't get this done because of Republicans or Democrats, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I'm, I'm the more recently I want these, these two, we have a two party system and the only way we're going to get rid of it is if these parties actually get control and start laying out their agendas and people see how terrible they are on both sides for that matter. I want, if the Republicans have the White House and both chambers of Congress, let them push through all their agenda. If they want to put abortion laws and uh, voting restrictions and whatever into place, let them do that. Let's see what happens. If it's a disaster, like most think it will be, then there'll be a huge swing and a different party will take control whether that's Democrats or third party, I think in the short term in the next, you know, let's say we ended the filibuster tomorrow. I would, I I would think it would take 10, 20 years for uh, third parties to be viable. 
in that situation because it would take people it would take both Democrats and Republicans being in charge long enough and seeing their policies fail their policies the ones they believe in and the ones they tout and the ones they say Republicans are obstructing and you know vice versa it would take enough time for people to see that neither of those two parties has it figured out and that this is all just a blame game before a third party could rise but I think that's the only way we ever get third parties I don't think with the current system that we'll ever have viable third parties because literally anytime something goes wrong for your party, you just blame the other side doing something against you. But if there's no filibuster and simple majority rules, we're going to see those policies enacted and they're going to, they're going to live, they're going to sink or swim. Right. Like, yeah. I think that's, that's where I'm at. I, I, it's easy for me to say as like a, you know, a left leaning person who sides with Democrats on most social issues that, oh yeah, in the filibuster, voting rights is super important. Uh, infrastructure is super important. If the Republicans are never going to work with them, you know, that's all great and fun. You know, four years ago, uh, Republicans owned all three of the major, you know, the two branches in the White House. Uh, they, they didn't, they only enacted, you know, corporate tax cuts. There's not a whole lot that they did in those two years. Mm-hmm. And, Granted, some of that was due to democratic obstructionism and stalling until the midterms so they could retake the house. Uh, again, I think if we have the current, like the the situation where you know a Republican Senate and a Democratic House, that that takes compromise. That's where the compromise comes in. You can't you can't get anything through either chamber. But if the mandate of the people is that one party owns all three, I say three branches. I know it's not the judicial branch, but yeah. for ease of speech all three branches that's a that's a mandate in my opinion let them do what they need to do trying to get a party to 60 plus or you know we'll just say 60 percent on in either chamber is kind of a pipe dream at this point nobody's ever gonna i don't want to say ever again but like the way the demographics are and the way especially in the house with gerrymandering like we're never going to hit that threshold really with the filibuster this has been a really long way of saying that I am against the filibuster. Yeah, well, so you make a couple of good points. And the first thing I would start with is I'm against obstructionism, too. Like, I, I think right. if you're. I don't if think anybody I don't think anybody likes it, but it's like an it's. Oh, I disagree. It's just. I, I, so, like I said, I think I think that I think that the like I said, I think the game plan on both sides when when, um, you know, somebody has full control is to obstruct and to stall. Right. Like. We saw it in, with Obama in 2014 to 2016. We saw it with Trump uh, 2018 through 2020. And we're going to see it again with Biden after these midterms in 2022 because there's no way that Dems are holding either house at that point. Yeah, the Dems are having like 30 congressmen in the House retire. Yeah, I mean, it was the same thing with Trump in 2018, right? Like a lot of the Republicans didn't didn't run for reelection. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but just to say that, like, I don't think the average American on the street, if you talk to them, we're like, do you think obstructionism is, uh, is good? Like, I don't think people really like obstructionism. I think a lot of the partisan people, if you own a Trump hat, shirt and flag, of course you like obstructionism when the Democrats are in power. And if Trump is in the white house and you're a Bernie voter, of course you want them to obstruct. But I just think that in general, like the average, average person, if you ask them, they would prefer Congress not be uh, as gridlocked as it is. Yeah, um, man, I don't know. 
So you, you mentioned a couple of things, but I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, I think when you see more and more, I would say maybe over the last 10 years, when you see candidates run for office, they do very little to appeal to the moderate, the independent, or even try to win people over the opposing party. It has become, in my opinion, more and more, how do I rally the base and get the highest voter turnout from my base? And that's been, to me, more of a blueprint um, of, of how to win. And perhaps even more since President Trump had his stunning upset victory. I mean, that was more or less his strategy is stoke fear, rally a big base, and it worked. So I feel like you're seeing that more and more. And I think because you're seeing that more and more um, from the standpoint of elections, that demographic, that populace of, of citizenship, of citizenry, probably has become a little bit more maybe abrasive in how, 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 how willful they are in obstructing and has become less nuanced and reasoned and the way they want to see government approached, you know? Um, and I could be completely wrong because, but, but I say that, say like, I agree, like the vast majority of Americans want responsible government. I just don't know. I mean, I think, well, I think polling data would say that the vast majority of Americans don't always vote. Um, especially when it comes to like local elections and statewide elections, it's it's you know different a little bit for the national elections, but that that would be where I'd have some concern. Um, I think you make an interesting point though about obstructionism and being against it, because I am too. I don't think that. I mean, I think there are some things where people just can't compromise on. Like if I'm in office, like abortion is probably the one thing. Um, maybe one of a small number of things where I just can't find really any wiggle room. A lot of other things, it's like, okay, I'm going to recognize that, you know, my, my uh, political opponents have the votes. So I'm going to try to appeal to and reason within the way they do. And I'm going to try to make this as best I can, given the current situation. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not just going to do everything I can to, to you know, to have my side win, I guess. Um, but I think the way the federalist system works, especially now with the ease of information, I mean, you've got hundreds and hundreds of cities that are being ran very differently um, with Republican leadership, with Democratic leadership. You have dozens of states um, that are being ran differently. So I, I think, I mean, that's the beauty of the federalist system is you can kind of look and say, hey, what has worked and what hasn't worked? I mean, especially when you talk about having a national conversation, let's say on police reform, we've got a lot of different things that we can consider now, like, hey, this city or this state has done this with their law enforcement. Has it worked or has it not worked? Um, if it has worked, is it is it replicable? Is it something that we can repeat, or are we just too different in our you know jurisdiction to have it work? So I don't know that you need to get rid of the filibuster to to see if policy is sound um, and to have it played out. So just a thought on that. I forget what else I was going to comment on, but what else did you say? <laughs> you, you went for too long. I didn't write anything down. Uh, yeah, I know. The problem with me being long-winded. Yeah, I mean, in general, I just—it's I, not about—it's not about testing policies. It's about the national democratic platform, the democratic national 
convention and the RNC, the Republican National Convention, they have platforms. They say A, B, C, and D is what they want to do. And, you know, E, e F, G, and H is what the other party wants to do. And they're completely at odds with, for the most part. I'm, I want those people to enact what they want to enact so we can see whether it works or not. That's like all these things work in theory, but we don't put them into practice because of a lack of compromise. And, you know, the lack of compromise means that the filibuster is effective. I, I just want them. I, like I said, I just want to pass or fail. I want to see what you're going to do. I want to see if your ideas are good ones. We can have as many CBO studies and scores and we can have all these um if we pass this law it'll create this many jobs if we pass this you know this law it'll save this much amount of money you know investing in infrastructure does x for the economy like you can say that all day but if we can't get the vote if we can't get the the bills passed it's all for naught so again for me it's mostly just being it's just it's just being fed up with it right it's not about I want the Democrats to be able to do whatever they want. I do, but not for the reason you think. I want their I want their ideas to you know pass muster. I want them to be uh, war tested. I don't want. I'm I'm just tired of all the the. It's not even false promises necessarily, but it's like they can say something that's popular. I, here's one. Here's one that's that both sides of the aisle have been compromising on lately. Marijuana taking it off the scheduled drug list and making it decriminalized maybe not legal federally but decriminalized there's bipartisan uh uh, members of congress in the house at the very least i don't know if any senators have sponsored it but they're they're working on trying to make we at the very least off of schedule one and Mm -hmm. then decriminalized overall that's popular on both sides of the aisle for the most part like it's not a controversial thing and and we still can't get that done like it's just not, and this kind of goes to the broader system of government conversation. There's no benefit for Republicans to compromise with Democrats or vice versa, in general, because when Biden is it when Biden is president, and the Democrats do something that is technically popular with Republicans, Biden's going to get credit for it. The Democrats are going to get credit for it, and that's political poison. There's no, there's no good faith in Congress. There's no, there's no easy wins, right? Like if something is popular with everybody in the United States, like polling, like weed, for example, polls very well, you know, 60% plus easily Mm -hmm. that doesn't get done because neither side wants to give the other a win, even on stuff that Trump had good ideas about Democrats. You can't give Trump the win. You have to vote against it. Well, yeah, his, his, uh, USMCA. I mean, even though it got passed, um, if you remember, like, you know, Speaker Pelosi was very much, oh, we changed it so much he wouldn't recognize it. So even though it got passed, there was this kind of right. spin on it where, like, oh, it's only successful because we reworked what he did and, you know, he's just going to sign it because that's his thing. And you have to. You have to do that because we have a two-party system and it's a it's they've turned it into a zero-sum system. If, if <laughs> yeah. one side wins, the other side loses. There's no joint wins anymore and it, and it's it's really i mean it, it's it's the symptom of the two-party system and, and our system of government and how things are run so yeah. again i'm no i that's again i'm just that's my why i'm so fed up with it's not the filibuster the filibuster is a tool of 
of what's happen of what they use for what's happening. But I think getting rid of that again is just gonna it's gonna lay everybody's cards on the table, and that's what I want. I'm tired of the subterfuge. I'm tired of the blaming both sides. I want to. I want it's put up or shut up. basically. So I would I would totally be good, fine. And I, like again, people are like oh well, what's going to happen when the Republicans take over and the filibuster's gone? Good. If they get voted in, they should be able to enact their policies, and they should be held accountable for what happens. And yeah. I, I, I do, I do take stock of the argument. Like it needs to be longer thinking. If people act, if the simple majority just starts passing a bunch of laws, like that's going to cause chaos. I could see that, but I just don't think that'll necessarily happen. I think, in general, <laughs> in general, and this is maybe giving too much, uh, being too much of an optimist. I think they do act with some restraint, but again. You brought it up earlier. Abortion. Abortion is wildly popular among Republicans. There's no, there was no abortion legislation, and once Trump took office, you know, like there, there could have been. I don't, I doubt it would have passed. But the Republicans had the both chambers and the presidency. They could have put something up to vote on abortion, but they say they're for abortion. I, I mean, I, th- I think not for abortion. I, I think the majority of Republicans, much like you, truly believe they're against abortion. But being a politician. Being for uh, being for or against something almost doesn't matter as much as getting reelected, getting campaign funds, all that stuff. In certain certain areas, being anti-abortion, even though you're a Republican, you can't you can't put in legislation and have that on the record because you'll get beat. You know, there are Republicans in California, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, there are Republicans in you know Virginia just elected a v- Republican governor there are other extenuating circumstances because of this crappy two-party system we have. Right. Yeah. Well, and you said something that that more and more resonates with me, you know, when you're talking about uh, not, not going to obstructionist politics and really it's the idea of pass it, let's see what it does in the real world. And then let's make decisions based off data. Um, And while I disagree with a number of Andrew Yang's policies, again, I respect him. I enjoy hearing him speak. And that's his whole thing is like elected leaders or candidates that say, this is what I want to do. Here's the predictive results. And then if it passes, you need to hold up the predictive results with what actually happened. And if it didn't meet the prediction, no excuses. Like the data's in, change course. Like don't don't yeah. blame it on anything else. And, I, and I, I do like that. And I really thought for a little while we were going to go to more than a two-party system because I thought the Democrats were going to go more Democratic socialist and kind of traditional Democrat. And I thought the Republicans were going to go traditional Republican and then a like Tea Party Republican, like fiscal conservative. And I think for the most part, the Republicans never really changed. And it'll be interesting to see what the Democratic Democratic Party does, because I think they're getting more popular Democratic Socialist um, in Congress and with a bigger platform. So I, th- I could see fairly significant reform coming to the Democratic Party compared to what it was in, like, let's say, early 2000s. Um, probably a conversation for a different time, but the the future, I think the two party system and the future of it is an interesting conversation. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned though, that, uh, you know, just talking about like if they get voted in, you know, basically if, if people get voted in or party gets voted in, you need to get what they want. And I think the problem with that is we just become very irresponsible in the way we govern, because, for instance, that was, you know, Senator McConnell's argument with not putting up um, a judge for, uh, 
you know, uh, Judge Garland, I mean, yeah, well, previously Judge Garland, now uh, yeah. Attorney General Garland, um, is he said, hey, you know, six months ago, the Republicans voted, uh, the people voted Republicans into the Senate. They did that knowing we have this power, so we have a responsibility to the people to not even vote on, at the time, Judge Garland. And it was 460 days or so before the president, uh, President Obama, stepped down. The nearly the same situation, but with, you know, like 90 days before presidential nomination, his whole argument at that time was then, well, they still gave us the Senate. They gave us a Republican. This is what the people wanted. And, I, and to me, like that was just not. Even though the conclusion was what I wanted, like I wanted more. Right. Con, of you, know, uh, you know, like the, the right. process there to me was very disingenuous, very bad faith. Um, and, and I think set a dangerous precedent for how we're going to do everything moving forward. Um, yeah. So that's where, like, I, I agree with you in, in general, but I just feel like more so than having a two party system, the advent of social media and even go back farther when it started with C-SPAN when like the, everything is, is blown up and on the news and readily available to where it's just political suicide to do any sort of compromising, to do any sort of reasoning, give and take. Um, I mean, honestly, like if if owners and labor unions bartered like this, we'd have no jobs. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think that's where government has just become irresponsible. And in part, it's because of, of the lack of lack of privacy. And I'm all about transparent government, but it's just a weird system that we have now where you use compromise is seen as weakness and not having a spine and not being true to principle and things like yeah. that. And we, there's, <laughs> there are deeper issues at play. It's not the filibuster. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, I'm ready for the filibuster to go just so we can expose these Congress, Congress people uh, mm-hmm. and what they really think, because it's, it's really easy to state your mind when you know that something can't happen. Right. Like, both Manchin and Cinema have said they are go- they would vote for the the Voting Rights Act, like they're in favor of the Voting Rights Act, but mm-hmm. they know for a fact that it'll never get to the vote because of filibuster, and they won't mm-hmm. vote to lift the filibuster. So it's really easy for them to say that. So it's just it's meaningless. That's what I'm saying. Like I I think it'd bring. You brought up the the Merrick Garland and the Amy Coney Barrett thing and the just huge hypocrisy that McConnell had in the two different situations. But he's there's no punishment. He it's not it's not even that there's no punishment. It's the exact opposite. It benefits him to be like that because it's such a zero sum game. They're not going to vote. No, no Republican is going to vote McConnell out for basically lying during the Garland thing maybe not lying, telling the truth during the Garland thing and then lying during the Amy Coney Barrett thing, which was the exact same thing. You said it was 400 some odd days with Obama. It was Amy Coney Barrett got confirmed in early October, early October. It was a month. I think think she was nominated with, she was nominated with a certain amount of, but she got, she got confirmed. Like the actual confirmation happened in October, like a month before, a month before the election. Uh, So yeah, like, but he, so McConnell doesn't get punished. Well, and I think like, Senator McConnell's argument was we have the Senate and the White House. Like the American right. people knew what this could mean when they voted. So this is why I'm going to do it. I, I don't sure. know no. if that was what he was thinking the whole time. I think it was just opportunity. No. 
But of course not. It's all opportunity. You think right? he's evil? Like you, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't necessarily think he's evil. I think he has to play the game, and the game is the game. The game is mm-hmm. is rigged for more or less, right? Like I, I think we don't curse on this program very often, but I think McConnell is as full of shit as any other politician there is, right? Like there are very few politicians that are actually honest and earnest. Like you can say a lot of things about Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders says what he believes and believes what he says. He is not putting up a front. Yeah. Yeah. He's not putting up a front. He's, he, he has convictions and he follows his convictions. He doesn't, he generally doesn't compromise. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what McConnell's convictions are besides holding power? Like what conviction does that man have? He has none. And it's, that's the majority of Congress. It's rare to have a Bernie Sanders or I'm sure there's people on the right. Um, I just can't think of it on the top of my head. Well, I think, like, um, for what it's worth, to represent the right, like, I think Senator Ben Sass is is principally driven um, and has convictions. I think, uh, Adam Kinzinger yeah. in the House. Adam, well, useful. Yeah, he's still in, but he's he's retiring. Um, Dr. Ron Paul, you know, is another one um, on the on the left. I think uh, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. I think she had pretty clear principles and convictions and was true to him, even when it wasn't popular. But that's probably about the half dozen that. <laughs> Right, right. Like, I mean, there's more. Like, I think, I mean, as much crap as she gets on the right, but I think, I think AOC is pretty principled. Like, she's a out and out democratic socialist and wants big government to change everybody's lives. She's not hiding that fact. Yeah. Uh, and it might, and for her case, she doesn't hold a lot of power or a lot of sway. Like, there are progressives in the Democratic Party, but they're the minority. The more centrist Democrats like Biden, Pelosi, whatever, they hold all the power. So it's easier to be principled when you don't. But like in the Senate, it's a lot harder to be principled because you do hold like one of 50, one of 100 votes is a lot more than one of 400 and, you know, 400 plus. Yeah. 435, I think. So. Um, so, yeah, like, but yeah, I give credit. I think SAS is generally uh, a principled guy. And but yeah, I don't it's not. I, I don't think McConnell, to get back to it, I don't think McConnell's evil. He's playing the game and he's playing he's it. Right. He's, he's the embodiment of what everybody says they hate about politicians, but to his, not to his credit, but to be fair to him, like he has to be that way. That's the system we have without him being that way. His party would never win. Like, I don't mean like necessarily elections, but they would never win in Congress. He has to play that role. He mm-hmm. has to take the brunt of that. And it's just, again, it's, I don't think removing the filibuster fixes everything in Congress, but I think it makes a lot of people, a lot of people more uh, accountable for what they say and what they say they'll do. So, yeah, I think, again, it's not, we've, we've actually talked about this way longer than I thought we would have, but I, I think it would be interesting. And the other, you brought up an interesting point about like pass a bill. Let's see what the data is. I think to go along with getting rid of the filibuster, if I'm, you know, the benevolent dictator and king of the world and can fix all this stuff in one stroke. I would say like every bill passed in Congress has a five-year expiration and you'll have to vote every five years to renew those laws. If you want them to keep them on the books, there can be stuff like general stuff, like, you know, sort of how like the budget has to be renewed every year, no matter what. Right. Like I think the majority of stuff like that, especially like social, social law type stuff should be revisited every, every five years minimum. And you, you gather that data and you see what the effects of that law, that law were. And then you vote again. Yeah. I would just say for stuff like that, I mean, and you mentioned social, I'm not trying to pick on the example, but gosh, 95% of social stuff should not even be a government issue. 
95 percent of social yeah. stuff has, has no bearing on how what i'm doing affects somebody else's life liberty and property but doesn't sure. matter what an elected body thinks that's where the republicans in my mind always get it wrong is <laughs> they, yeah. they, 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 i was they, about to say we can keep uh, hoping that the government cedes power back to the people but we'll be here for eternity People need to take it. I mean, that's again. That's why you have elections. I don't mean like storm the gates. Not a January yeah. 6th. Or very clear. <laughs> like in, in democracy, you don't have to be. Like it, it, it's yeah, no. you know re- recognize that you're of buying for the people. Don't step over your bounds, or I'm not voting for you. Um, yeah. But anyway, not to make it not. It's not that simple, obviously. But yeah. But I. I, I mean, I like I said. I think. I mean. Hillary and Trump were two of the most unpopular candidates of all time. And a third party candidate still did nothing, nothing of note. It's the only, that's why I like among other things, but not to belabor the point that I've belabored for 20 minutes already on this podcast, like sink or swim. Let's see what their ideas are. Let's see if they work. If they don't work, let's get people elected to Congress who, who, you know, have, new and better and fresh ideas. And that would, that fosters more third party stuff. Like I said, I think it's really easy. You say, like you said earlier, like all they're doing is pandering to the base because that's all you need to do. Like there's no, there's no reason to compromise and there's no reason to compromise. You get elected, you go in there and you blame the other side for not being able to enact your agenda. That it's that simple. Uh, so again, I hope, yeah, my hope would be that as more, and again, I, I agree with you, like the majority of Americans don't like that. Um, I just think the majority of Americans who vote are okay with it. So my, my hope would be that more and more, poli- more and more American citizens would be like, this is nonsense. And no way should these, these people represent us. So I'm going to run for office. And in my campaign, I'm not going to demonize the other person. And I'm not going to straw man their arguments. Like, I'm going to understand what they're saying. I'm going to present a different case and I'm going to do it in a way that that's based in reason and respect. And I'm like, that's what the hope is. That's what I'm hoping for as <laughs> Americans kind of tire of the nonsense, but we'll see. So, so short of getting rid of the filibuster, the only other way I see third parties actually working and getting elected and breaking this duopoly we have. Uh, I'm kind of skipping ahead ahead of our talking points list because we've talked so long about the filibuster. But I think that if we move to a situation, a system of, of voting where you anybody could do it from their phones using their fingerprints, facial ID, whatever biometrics, like you go to the... Uh, not necessarily that. Well, first of all, this would be a really hard sell with the conspiracy-minded slash anti-government slash. Those aren't the same people. Everybody knows. No, 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 no. To be, I mean, there's overlap, but, but they're not, not, I just, yeah, it was, yeah. Not to say that they're all the same people, but like I know people and for good reason, I know people that are, you know, would never like register their fingerprint or their, you know, facial ID. Like that's a that's a a Chinese social credit system. Right. They don't want to do that. That's fine. But a lot of people use Apple, Apple face ID to unlock their phone. I use my thumbprint scanner on my my Android to unlock my phone. 
there are ways of verifying it's you on smartphones in 2022, right? I'd be interested in a system of voting where like you use one of those to verify it's you and then you vote from your phone, right? Like that's, you said it earlier, people don't vote. We had the most people voter ter- biggest voter turnout ever in the last presidential election and only half the pe- eligible voters voted. Like mm-hmm. the, it's just what it is. In the 2016 election, the most popular candidate was non-voting. People who didn't vote by far outnumbered the people who voted for our two. And this is only, there's 330 to 350 million people in the U.S. Only a hundred and some odd million votes. Like a third of the country is deciding who's going to public office. And like you said before, it's even less for local and state offices. It's not even, it's not even one third, which is pathetic. We can talk about, I guess, a little bit what the remaining time we have about how we can fix that. But I think one of the biggest things is like, you got to make voting easier. And I know that there are States, I think 19 States, uh, 25 States enacted 62 laws with provisions that expand voting access. 19 States enacted 33 laws that make it harder for Americans to vote. So I, I completely understand election security. Both sides are for election security, but in different ways, I would say. Depends on who wins. Yes depending on who wins the elections, for sure. The argument that I hear from the left is voter ID laws are racist. I think that voter, I I think getting an ID as long as it's free and every citizen has access and for the most part, you can do it online or quick. I think the issue is, the bigger issue I have is when these states like Texas and Georgia that close polling stations and only have one one polling station in, in a Houston precinct that has... I don't know, I'm going to make up a number, but a million voters. Like that's very clearly only having one precinct in the Houston suburb and only having one precinct out in West Texas is completely different. They're serving a completely different mm-hmm. amount of people. There should be like, maybe that's where I'm more in favor of the Fed stepping in and saying, you must have this many voting precincts per capita, like of your district. So if you have a million people, you need a hundred precincts. If you have a hundred thousand people, you need 10 precincts, whatever, whatever the number is like, there should be a certain amount of people per precinct law federally. And maybe that's as far as the federal regulation of voting goes, but how do you think we can a increase voting and what you're feeling on? We don't even have to call it voting restrictions, but securing elections versus making elections. Again, I think it's kind of a dichotomy of we want more people to vote, but we want them to vote securely some people see that as a, a an attempt to restrict voters. For me, in general, I fall on the restricting restricting a legal vote, somebody who could legally vote, restricting them from voting, however that happens, whatever way it happens, mm-hmm. is worse than allowing an illegal vote. Getting hacking voting machines and changing numbers and tallies, that's a completely different topic and not what I'm talking about. But like allowing one illegal vote is better than restricting a legal vote. I think I'd probably see them as equally evil, but I, I get you. We don't got to go with, e- we don't got to go with evil, but just like <laughs> bad, like, uh, <laughs> like you keep using the word evil. I don't think that the people are actually evil. I even said, you even made me say on this podcast that I don't think Mitch McConnell is evil. Uh, <laughs> even though he's a, he's a turtle. Uh, yeah, I don't necessarily think it's, it's evil. Right. And I don't necessarily even mean like, obviously like double voting or voting for somebody who's dead. 
intentionally uh, misrepresenting who you are, intentionally to vote bad. Being a felon in a state that took your rights away to vote while you're on parole or while you have fines or whatever it is, and then and, and you go and vote anyway, I see that as a much, much lesser deal than like intentionally placing a fraudulent vote. Okay, I mean, yeah, I can I can see your argument in that situation. I don't know if I agree with it or not, but I get what you're saying now. What was your original question? But like, what was the specific question? How how do you balance? Or like, what do you see as the solution to? We want as many we want as many legal voters to vote as possible, while still having election integrity. Where we're, we're I mean, I'm gonna good faith and steel man it and say that there is a there could be an issue with fraudulent voting. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's widespread, but it could happen if we don't have voter ID laws and getting doing away with like same day registration. If your address is wrong on your ID that you registered with, you don't get to vote those kind of restrictions. Right. I think I obviously think those ones aren't good. I think they're designed to limit voting, but I, I know that the both of us agree that we want as many, as many eligible voters to vote. That's the only way we're going to get a representative government. So how do you balance that with preventing illegal votes? Yeah. So, so I, I think there are a couple of, of ways you can do it. And I think you like, so for instance, I think with, with the Georgia bill, there was things in there that I agreed with things in there I didn't understand and want to know the argument behind the regulation. So for instance, one of the regulations was you can't bring somebody standing in line, any kind of snack or, or beverage. And I get if it's a political party, if you're there to volunteer for a party, but like you can't bring your grandmother, like who has diabetes, a snack and she's been waiting in line for two hours. Like that was the kind of thing where it was in the bill. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I would want to know why they put it in there. But I also think, I mean, I think they did open up the number of weekends that precincts were open. They opened up the number of hours it was open. Um, and it wasn't even, you have to have ID, um, especially for the mail-in portion. It was, um, like you have utility bills, you have, um, I mean, just kind of any basic thing you do to, to establish residence. So I think you can, pretty easily have assurance that the person is who they say they are and they live where they say they live just by the basic ways we function in society with, if you live somewhere, you have some sort of utility bill. If you, you likely have some form of identification um, because to get a job, you need some form of identification. So I think those are a handful of ways just in the, in the current non forward thinking way of approaching election security um, you can do it. Um, and while I'm against the federal government stepping in, I would much rather see like election day be a national holiday. And I get like, I just contradicted yeah. myself. And <laughs> I guess I'm saying like, I would rather have all 50 States say, Hey, this is a big deal. This is a unique thing we get to participate in. This is a unique responsibility that we have as a, as a free democratic society. And we're going to celebrate that. Right. So, so I would, I would rather see the states do that, but I can get the argument why something to me, like somewhat limited, somewhat limited from a federal government, you'd want to do that. I also think your idea is really good about, I mean, state houses just say, I mean, goodness, we, we, we apportion representation in the federal and state government based off size. So it seems reasonable to say from a logistical standpoint, let's make sure that we're not putting or not allowing any undue burden to come upon the citizenry with 
trying to elect a candidate by, like you said, every for every 10,000 people, you have to have a, uh, a, a precinct rather can't be larger than 10,000 people. And you have to have at least one voting station per precinct. So I think if you do early voting, if you do um, mail in voting, that probably more similarly follows the same procedures as like an absentee ballot. And if you if you have a a state legislate legislative body determine how many like a, a very clear way of, of how many uh, pre, uh, polling stations that need to be per people, then those are all ways that you can make not put any undue burdens on people, make voting not effortless because I don't agree with that, but reasonable. And then I think the security would be like relatively easy, especially when it comes to like having ballots, like have have a member, one member of each party, make it a two key uh, system, you know, where you, you put the safe set you put the votes in a safe. You need, you know, both keys to lock it. You need both keys to open it. Nobody else is getting in there. Like, I think that's a, probably a pretty safe way of doing it. It's similar to what happened in the federal government, at least on the like military you know, keeping keeping documents safe side of the house. So I don't think that's a hurdle that's too hard to overcome. Yeah, I think I would like to see compromise as far as like Democrats, okay, voter ID laws, but then in return, you get, you know, increased polling places in some of these places that don't like, you know, you just said what you said, what I said. <laughs> uh, but also stuff like, Automatic registration, like when you turn 18, you're just automatically registered. Like you don't ever have to register to vote. That's insane. Like just let people be automatically registered. But then when you go show up to vote, you have to have an ID. Like I think that's a fine compromise. I think like purging voter rolls like they did in Georgia in 2018 before the election there, like that's so ridiculous. Like no reason. And I think early voting is great. I voted voted early in every single election because it's nice to just show up the lines aren't as long. The only time I didn't vote early was 2016, the presidential election. And I had to wait an hour to vote prior to going into work. That sucked. Like that's the most, that was the, that was the longest I've ever waited to vote was that 2016 election. But every election since then, especially with the expansion of early voting was super easy. At most I'd show up and there'd be five people ahead of me. If that, and it took maybe 15 minutes in and out. One of the things you you sort of, mentioned that I wanted to touch on is one of the safest ways to do an election is through paper ballots. It is very hard to forge or fake or inject a lot of paper ballots into a, especially a national election that will have a big enough effect on the election without being noticeable. Mm-hmm. Like that's paper ballots. Are, I, I've, I've watched videos and, and read some articles about my way of thinking of like, I wish everybody could just vote from their phone it's probably never going to happen because there are there. That's an easier, even with biometrics, even with whatever encryption and security you want to do. It's that's always going to be easier to hack than paper ballots. And like you said, like as long as they're in a secure facility and handled properly, like there's no way to swing an election through paper ballots. I don't say there's no way, but in, in the United States, there's really no way to do it. So paper ballots are one of the, most secure forms of election, which is good. But I just, I think stuff like once you turn 18 automatic registration, as long as your name and birth date and everything are correct, who cares about your address? Uh, unless it's like uh, for local elections, absolutely. But for like, well, you, have address to you to the, the correct. Right. Right. But if, I mean, 
again, for, for non house of representatives election, everything else is statewide national anyway. So it's not as big of a deal to me, but yeah, I think whatever we do to increase, like that's the, that's, that's the only way we're going to get third parties is if we get engage that other hundred and some odd million people who don't vote. Like there's no way that we can break the chokehold of the two party system when 30%, let's see, we'll say 60 million when 60 million on the left and 60 million on the right vote for down ballot, their party, no matter what, that's 120 million people. And then the other 120 million people just don't vote. Like we're never going to break that that monopoly unfortunately duopoly i should say yeah, uh, you got right. anything else to add i think i pretty much hit on everything i wanted to talk about even though we didn't really get super into we we had a pre-game meeting about oh we think the filibuster will be quick and voting rights will be the beat of the conversation and we kind of flipped that Jake um, got heated about uh, the final thing so. yeah, yeah. Well, let, let, let me ask you this like because i'll say it i think it bothers me more when i feel like republicans are making just an unsound argument, even if they're getting to the conclusion I like, if they're not providing good evidence or good substance to the argument, like it, it bothers me. Sure. I think in, like, one of the things that bothers me that, that Democrats, you know, commonly do with this particular thing is like, you know, voter ID laws. Or they just, To me, they're very quick to say what Republicans would call like election security. They're very quick to throw racist on that without yep. pointing to a specific thing and how that is specifically targeting racial minorities. And maybe they do, and I just don't see it. But, I mean, I guess it did bother you when, when they just, like, to me, kind of broad brush, these are racist without having, like, the supporting data. Am I missing the supporting data? Like, how, how do you feel about that, that argument and the commonality? Uh, so, right. I think it's an – do I think voter ID laws are racist? No. Do I think voter ID laws affect African-Americans at a higher rate? Yes. Why do they affect African-Americans and minorities at a higher rate? Because they actually affect poor people at a high rate. And as we know, a lot of, a lot of minorities are poor, unfortunately. It's what it is. Whether that's a racist system keeping them poor is a different discussion. But it affects poor people. Poor people don't have the option to take the day off. Poor people probably are working multiple jobs. Poor people can't go sit at the DMV all day to get an ID and then miss a day of work to go vote. Like I get it from that perspective. It, and, it, and it does affect, again, it does affect African-Americans and minorities at a higher rate, but that doesn't mean it's racist. That's just an effect of, I think it's a, it's more of a class thing. And I think a lot of things we say are racist when you dig into them is more of a class thing. Why are minorities poor on average is probably not probably, I don't want to sound more definitive than I should be. It could be a race thing, but voter ID law in general is not a race thing. I think there are some restrictions in certain areas that are aimed at limiting uh, democratic voters in Republican, generally Republic places that have Republican control. They want to, they like not only gerrymandering, but also like you said, like I said, they severely in Texas, they severely limited limited uh, polling places in areas with high concentrations of Democratic voters. Those areas of high concentrations of Democratic voters in Texas are generally have a lot of African-Americans in them. So it's not necessarily racism in, in that regard, but it is 
trying to limit the a large portion of the Democratic base from easily voting. It's about as far as you can go without restricting their right to vote. Like forcing people to wait in line. Again, this goes back to the class issue. Forcing people to wait in line for hours on end restricts who can vote. It's just yeah, how it is. Yeah, it is. And I agree with that. And that's why I think your, 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 your suggestion of, you know, that there needs to be legislation of, you know, polling places to this many thousand, you know, uh, yes. uh, you know, registered voters, however you want to. There's, there's a story I read about in India and in their elections, there has to be a polling place within two miles of every citizen or 10 kilometer, whatever, whatever it is, I could pull it up. And there's a story of there's a like a group of five election officials who hike through the jungle because there's a, a remote village that has some odd amount of people and they have the right per Indian law to have a polling place accessible. If mm-hmm. India can make that happen, the United States can make that happen. There's no excuses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess, you know. One of the reasons I asked that, for instance, I mean, because I'm a Braves fan, so the All-Star game getting moved this past year um, was a pretty big, like, frustration as a fan, but as I dug more into just the ripple effect of that and kind of comparing and contrasting Colorado voting law with what Georgia had had recently passed, there was not a significant difference. There were were places where Colorado was a little tighter um, and, and Georgia was a little looser and vice versa. But what what I thought was interesting was like one of the more common themes that you'll see in like uh, CRT academic literature is how egalitarian efforts usually adversely affect the minority community. They say they're trying to protect Atlanta is one of the like most populous cities for minority entrepreneurship and business ownership. And all you did was take away millions of dollars from the city. Now I'll say all you did. But when, when they made that decision, even if it was the right one, I disagree with the decision. Don't ignore the fact that you took away millions and millions of dollars from the local economy. And it was a local economy that had a higher congregation of African-Americans, I think, of any populous city, definitely in the South. But I want to say like like east of the Mississippi. Like so, so to me, it's just like a, that's why I would say you, you, you need to do it. If, if it's true, you need to do a better job. Those who would bring an allegation like that of saying. Here are the elements of the bill that are directly impacting almost only, you know, African-Americans. And here's how you could change it to not have that effect, but keep the security. And I feel like, you know, that that, that just wasn't done maybe as well as it should have been. And the reason I think I think it, I think it could have been done well, because, you know, the, the two generations ago history of civil rights leaders, you know, with Malcolm X and uh, Minister Farrakhan and. Um, you know, a much younger uh, Jesse Jackson and Martin Luther King Jr., like they articulated well, very clear arguments from U.S. law, um, Martin Luther King more so from like scripture to say like, here are the things we have in society. Here's the problems. Here's, the, you know, and then they, they did these things well. And I feel like now we just become a society that says, give me 150 characters on, on you know, what's good and bad. And we just blanket statement racist. And I just, yes. uh, to me, it's an injustice to what you say you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I, I think, well, I mean, that's, we're in the soundbite era. We're in the Twitter area era. 
So, I mean, that's, it is what it is, but I still think that there are, I don't, this doesn't necessarily relate to politicians and activists and stuff, but I fall victim to this stuff too, where like I see somebody, there's a video on Twitter or Reddit or somebody sends it in a group chat and I start the video. And if it's longer than like two minutes, I'm out. Like I don't have time to watch a 10 minute video. And like, I, I wonder like if Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all these great speakers from uh, the civil rights era, like if they were in the current era, would they be able to hold the attention of people? Because we're like, we've become such an ADD society. Like everything is small bites, TikToks, twit tweets, like everything is small, small, small. When you can't, these are important issues that require much more thought and nuance in a longer form. I, I to contrast that, I think podcasts are the commentary on the American public. <laughs> it is, but I mean, it's it's also like we could go on forever about like certain small parts of what we think is wrong with voting in the system or whatever. But like, there's a larger societal issue at play too, right? Like that's the that's the elephant in the room. It's not even if we fix a lot of these small things, like there's still Americans at large in general are not engaged with politics or what's going on or what's going on in the world, world events. Like they don't. They don't care enough, but stuff like, like I said, like, I just, I think it'd be interesting to see there aren't really any of the, like cynically, there aren't, there aren't the, the, the amount of orators who are as good as Martin Luther King Jr. And those from the civil rights era and others of history. Like, I don't think that style would really work well. Today. I mean, I don't know. President Biden's pretty good and he has a, uh, you know, good following. <laughs> it, it's it's i mean he called somebody a son of a bitch which ended up being a huge news clip instead of any of his thoughts on ukraine or inflation or you know but that's the society we live in like that's unfortunately what it is uh and i'm like again i'm not trying to like act high and mighty i fall victim to it too like if it's a it's if it's a 10 minute video like it better be the best 10 minute video ever for me to watch it like i i don't i like small clips i like i like moving i've got that same add i don't want to i don't use tiktok because it's chinese spyware but uh i understand that that instant gratification and you're advocating for two minute clips yes well that's that's the point i was going to say before is like the dichotomy the paradox is like i think that podcasts have become that long form arena of being able to get your ideas out there. And this is going to be on, go off on a tangent right at the end. But like Dan Crenshaw has been getting a lot of heat lately, not only because he yelled at a, a girl at one of his campaign events, but he was a fifth best returns in Congress on trading stocks last year, according to his filings. Right. And so he went on a, a show called the all American savage, which is a, I believe a right-leaning show. I believe the guy was a ranger or a seal or something. He's some sort of special forces. He went on his podcast and basically lit up Dan. Like it was supposed to be more of a friendly-ish interview, but he lit up Dan Crenshaw with a bunch of questions about, do you think Congress should be trading individual stocks? You've done, according to this, you've made this much amount of money, blah, blah. And Crenshaw really didn't have a whole lot to counter what the guy was asking. Like he didn't make any good arguments, any coherent arguments in my opinion. But I think that the podcasts have become that arena to kind of showcase your ideas or be exposed for uh, when you're a hot take artist on Twitter and TikTok and whatever. Uh, these long form 
conversations are where that stuff is taking place. Like, well, it's a long way of saying like the only way that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X survive in 2022 is if they hosted a podcast together. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. So <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see what the future holds with two party systems and filibusters and podcasts and all that is 2022 America. So yeah, it's not looking great, but what is great <laughs> Dang, Jake. is the one we want deep state podcast. We are on episode 15, which is kind of crazy. It doesn't feel like it's been 15 episodes. Like I went through our, when I went uploaded the last episode, I was going through our list. And I was like, man, I didn't even remember we had a conversation about like when I think of odd topics to talk about, I'm like, oh, we already had this conversation in episode four. It, it's really funny to me. We've, we've got this many and we're, we're going to keep going, but we appreciate you guys listening. I'm on Twitter at the rake, but the A is a four at Thomas black underscore 86. And the show is at OVO deep state. Join our Discord. It is in the information and the link is below. I'm trying to think. We're having a conversation currently about NFTs and to a lesser extent blockchain. Uh, that was the com- the topic du jour. Uh, very interesting stuff. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into a technology's effect on the US and government in general. Uh, that'll be an episode topic eventually. But that's I'm kind of educated on NFTs, more so on blockchain stuff. I don't know how much of an interest you have in that kind of stuff, but yeah, the conversation on Discord was good. So join that if you want to argue about if NFTs are worthless or not. Uh, But otherwise, we have a gaming chat, a sports chat. We just talked about the greatest divisional playoff round ever in the NFL. Uh, That was a fun time. And then any other topics from our episodes or what you think we should talk about we discuss in the discord so hit that link join us below like subscribe on all the podcast stuff and that's all i got anything more you need to say thomas no take care guys thanks for listening thanks guys